Welcome to the Extra Credits Podcast, where we search for meaning in your favorite movies and shows. I'm Trey. And I'm Kelsey. Today, we're talking about one of the more technically impressive directors working right now, someone who is both obsessed with genre, but also somehow subverts genre in bizarre ways. That person is Ryan Johnson. Yes. Specifically today, we're going to be giving extra credits to Knives Out and Glass Onion. But before I do that, I want to interrogate Johnson's career and interest by going through his filmography, if you're cool with that, Kels, because... You haven't seen all of his movies. Yeah. So actually, I was not going to come on this pod. I'm, I'm just coming on the pod last minute. So yeah. I have nothing prepared today. And I'm just going to give <laughs> random thoughts for the movies I have seen. Um, and because I haven't seen all of his films, I'll, I'll be here in support as your ranking. But I am really excited to talk about Knives Out and, and Glass Onion on the back half of this pod. I'm sure listeners have missed having you on and not having to hear me solo for the past like month. I like your <laughs> solo pods. I listened. Well, we're married, so you have to like them. <laughs> and we're running this, whatever this is. Okay, Ryan Johnson. So Johnson is a graduate from USC Film School, which I think he wanted to go there because of George Lucas, as he is unsurprisingly a huge Star Wars buff, which I think... Kelsey, you know he directed a Star Wars movie, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And actually, so I just listened to a podcast where he talks about this. He was accepted to USC just in the general admission uh, and an undecided major. And he like kept applying to the film school apparently, but kept getting rejected. Huh. Until I guess he sent this like, fuck you letter, this like really <laughs> intense letter to them. And apparently they liked it and they're, they were like, you're in. That feels very much like him after watching all But he feels so nice. Movies. I couldn't imagine him writing like a scathing no, letter. No, he's pretty spicy. Uh, <laughs> and now about 25 years out of film school, Johnson has written and directed six feature films, which might not seem like a lot to everybody, but all of them have done very well. They're critically acclaimed box office successes. I believe in total, his films have grossed close to $2 billion, which is a crazy average for six movies. Yeah. That's so much money, especially due to the fact that one of his movies was like $500,000, his first film, Brick. But I think with Looper, Knives Out, and Star Wars The Last Jedi, he's pretty well known for being able to make pretty genre-breaking and explosive movies. And even Brick was like a $500,000 budget, but it made like 4 or $5 million. So he kind of like 10x that budget, which is pretty nuts. And he's also directed some of the more famous episodes of Breaking Bad, which you know we've said on the pod, we've never really got into that show we're going to eventually but we've only seen yeah. like two episodes of it but apparently he directed a couple episodes in the last season and people love those so that's really cool so it seems like whatever work he puts out there is pretty great and now that johnson has become our contemporary murder mystery go-to director i guess uh and sort of the star wars fan favorite director too which i'm sure is a lot of stress <laughs> i think i wanted to take the opportunity of the success of glass onion to try and give extra credit to johnson's work and maybe find a through line in some of his movies and what they're examining. Okay, well, I'm I'm excited to hear you. You're, al you're <laughs> along takes. for the ride? <laughs> Just like the listeners? Okay, let's do this. So I guess what I've been thinking about for over a week now, which, you know, I've watched all of his movies in about a week, is, well, you know, what is so successful about Ryan Johnson and his movies? And why has he built like a cult following, which is now just a massive following, no longer just like a small cult following? And I think... He's a figure we keep coming back to because he's unapologetically creative and self-reflective, but importantly, in absurd ways that are comical, which I think people appreciate. He never takes himself too seriously. And you can feel how free he is when he's playing in genre. He kind of treats genre like a board game in a way, and he doesn't feel weighed down by genre stereotypes like other writer-directors. 
And additionally, he makes himself even more singular by subverting elements of genre that he's kind of known for now, whether he likes it or not, which I'll get into a little bit later. And he's kind of in this like rare tier of multi-genre directors who can grab an audience's attention. Like Steven Soderbergh, for example. Kelsey, I I know you've seen a few of his movies, but do you get that Oceans vibe a little bit through the dialogue and the way he shoots movies? Yeah, there's like such a... Johnson has like a very distinct style. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I actually think he'd make a great horror movie writer. Oh, wow. Because, yeah, I think so too. You know, when talking to Barbarian Zach Kreger on the pod recently, and he was talking about how similar comedies and horrors are when writing them on a page, and Jordan Peele's talked about this too, I can feel that in Ryan Johnson's work, and he says he wants to play in every genre, so I'm kind of excited for potentially a future horror movie from our guy. But really, I think at the core of why people keep coming back to Johnson is his, you know, his ability to manip- manipulate expectations and their work in any genre but more technically and this is where i think a lot of cinephiles love him for he kind of holds the audience's emotional attention with the way he blocks his scenes Mm -hmm. and the way he stages his actors on set he creates these layers and depth in every shot like if you go back and watch uh knives out for example you're gonna find something new in every viewing and i bet you could grab some stills from his movies and the shot would look like a painting with abstract shapes pointing your attention all over the place and with different meaning in every uh, kind of uh, layer of the scene. Yeah. Which sometimes <laughs> characters can be... characters are so great. Like looking at their faces and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like a lot of that is often distracting. Like there's not always like some kind of thematic underpinning to a choice he's making technically, but it can be like a distraction to kind of, I guess that's the whole point of trying to subvert the audience's expectation of what they know to be true about genre. And that's definitely the case in Knives Out and Glass Onion. Yeah. I mean, I think he's so in his own lane. You're right. And I think the best example to kind of, especially with the murder mystery mystery genre, to compare his movies to is like the Poirot movies, yeah, Poirot, right? Yeah, where they often feel kind of like weighted down by the serious of the genre, and they feel almost like they're movies that were made in like the two thousands or something. And um, I still enjoy those movies because they kind of have their own kind of camp right community um within a a mystery like a clue like movie yeah um but because we don't have a lot of them because they do lend themselves you know mystery movies lend themselves to a lot of like tropes and Mm -hmm. and things that maybe people won't be surprised by johnson is like doing all these really unique just fun elements and is able to incorporate this like foundation of commentary through his situations and through his really dynamic characters and even like you said like his his scenes that he sets up with layers Mm -hmm. um so yeah i think he is really in his his own lane and and very unique yeah he's in his agatha christie bag and he's trying to you know find the inspiration in christie he's talked about how that's his favorite novelist and like trying to bring those books onto screen or trying to bring some of the movies that have been adapted from novels and kind of uh subvert people's expectations on what they expect out of those movies which i think is commendable and he's trying to make some of his own stuff too but i think what stands out most about johnson and probably why he deserves extra credit is his writing not of plot necessarily or the scheme of his kind of mysteries but specifically how he writes his characters his lead characters and their motivations the story for me was about using each one of these characters as a different facet to explore honestly kind of you know in myself more than anything else um both privilege and also though a more fundamental thing than that which is kind of just that basic human thing of when something you believe is yours is threatened what how do you react to that and that kind of 
giving a very clear spotlight as to the moral compass of, of every one of us. Like each I character is sort of an outcast or someone who has been othered in some way or restricted from living a normal life. Yeah. That can be like from their own rebellious choices or they've been excluded from mainstream society somehow like brendan from brick which kelsey you've never seen that movie but that's joseph gordon levitt's character okay i think you walked in for a scene or two when i was watching it the other night was this the one that i walked in and i was like oh is this a wes anderson vibe weird movie? no that's actually the brothers bloom okay which is the next one to get to which is kind of more of an existentialist con artist searching for purpose it's like the con artist trope of the 2000s that Soderbergh, speaking of Soderbergh, really loves a lot. Or they have a fantastic Mr. Fox from Wes Anderson. Like these movies, these con artist films, they kind of are um, an evolution of what we see in murder mysteries from the 70s and 80s that we don't get as much anymore, which is interesting. Okay. So, but yes, he has Wes Anderson elements, which is probably what you picked up on. And then the case of another outcast and orphan in Joe from Looper dealing with similar ethical dilemmas like in Brothers Bloom, but in like a more gritty way. And with Knives Out, you have Marta, who is marginalized by elitist and exploited by the wealthy. We're going to get into that character arc a lot today, but she's obviously othered. And I think the most straightforward example in all of his work, in all of his writing, of this kind of through line of character motivations and arcs is probably my selfish personal favorite, which is Kylo Ren. He's the biggest sad boy of all time. (laughs) (laughs) But this time with a lightsaber, better watch out. The resistance is dead. The war is over. And when I kill you, I will have killed the last Jedi. You're still holding on. <laughs> oh my God. Kylo Ren, sad boy. Um, yeah. I just had the funniest image when you said that of like, you know, the, the marriage story scene with Adam Driver. When he's screaming. No. when Oh, no. That one is obviously like very famous where mm-hmm. he's like crying and having that breakdown. But no, I meant the one singing. where he's singing. Oh, hell yeah. And it's Great just scene. like kylo ren though instead (laughs) (laughs) he's like he's like somebody hold me too close (laughs) uncle please hold me closer (laughs) wait uncle palpy no uncle luke oh wait oh never mind (laughs) all right and in uh glass onion this is not a spoiler because we're going to get to spoilers a little bit later today the whole group of glass onion are outcasts that may even include ryan johnson himself in some way. And I'm gonna get to that later too. So all these characters, this is my point. My big point here is all these characters, Johnson writes, have been excluded somehow in different ways. They all make choices to try to reintegrate back into society, but they each have completely different agendas. Like I think after rewatching his filmography fully, all of his characters by wanting to be included back into society, they either want to blow it up for like nihilistic reasons, (laughs) like Brothers Bloom, or they want to tear down hypocritical systems that they feel have wronged them somehow, like Kylo, or they just want to survive and have freedoms and find stability, like Marta and Knives Out. So I think what's so successful about Johnson and his characters and the way they all represent lost people searching for purpose in all the wrong places is that he capitalizes on these characters uh, in any genre. Like he's not afraid to put any of these motivations in any genre. And they're very cinematic in that way because their motivations are clear and each character is sort of relatable in their flaws. Even the characters that are ethically doing terrible things. Yeah. And we have like elements that are heightened in Knives Out and in Glass Onion. And even if we can't relate to the individual characters, it's always like a relatable concept that's lying underneath it. Like the family conflict in Knives Out Mm -hmm. or... Like who hasn't had a conversation about like Joe Rogan or these disruptors um, that serve as like a, a major like strange piece of 
of our society and this new part of our, our lives that, that live online. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think he's done a really good job of deconstructing outcasts. Like obviously what you're talking about with Glass Onion, but in all of his films really, and how they all try to reintegrate themselves back into society. I think it's a pretty good through line of his work. And that framework of understanding his film will, I think, help me try and rank his movies today, which is starting to become a, a consistency in all of our pods. I don't know if you noticed this, Kels. We're just like constantly ranking things now. Yeah. I'm not trying to become a ranking <laughs> podcast, but it is kind of fun to Ranking at least... is hard. I, I don't like giving like scores or like numbers to things. Yeah, but ranking feels more like genuine. Like yeah. I, I don't think I'm ranking trying to put it- Ranking within a filmography feels fair. Yeah, especially especially because Ryan Johnson's made six really good movies. And like, I think that's a good, good place to start at number six. The Brothers Bloom. So Johnson blending genres and styles of filmmaking seamlessly is really impressive in all of his movies. I think stylistically, Brothers Bloom kind of informs what he becomes so great at in Knives Out and Glass Onion or Future Mysteries, which is why I think when you walked into this movie, Kelsey, you thought it looked like Wes Anderson. Yeah. He's captured a weird Wes Anderson, Steven Soderbergh, or repressed versions of them in this movie, <laughs> which I guess sums up Johnson's work pretty well and why it's so appealing. I think Bloom is the lowest on my list, even though I like it, because the movie went from being wildly incoherent. Like, there were moments where I'm like, did Ryan Johnson direct this? Like, the guy who just made Brick that I just watched? Like, how is that possible? And it was, like, really tonally volatile, and I didn't vibe with the first 30 minutes and the quirky performances. More quirky performances than I've ever seen in a movie, I think. And, or at least in a long time. And then by the end of the movie somehow, I don't know if it was Mark Ruffalo because I love Mark Ruffalo, but I felt oddly emotionally attached to the plot and the characters. And the end was really satisfying in ways that are kind of difficult to articulate without doing a deep dive on this movie. But it is a really good movie for those reasons about like kind of sticking with it to the end. And you do feel like a little bit conned throughout the movie, which I think is really smart too. And also Rachel Weiss. <laughs> she's amazing. Uh, and she's great in every movie she's in. This is a pro Rachel Weiss podcast. Yes. Also, I think she's, is she married to Daniel Craig? I'm yeah, pretty sure she is. I think so. So yeah, there's a lot going on in this movie, not just through the interesting subversive tactics that Johnson comes back to over and over again, and not because of the interesting staging he does as very Wes Anderson-y, but also because of the performances in this one. I kept like walking in and out of the room and I was like, wait, is that Adrian Brody? Wait, yes. is that Mark Ruffalo? <laughs> wait. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Number five, Glass Onion. I'll talk about this movie in non-spoiler ways right now, and we're going to get into spoilers later on the podcast, but this is a good movie. I should say that off the top. It's a good movie. I feel like nervous, Kelsey. <laughs> like, I'm Why? like, people love this movie. I'm like excited to rewatch it, but the reaction to this is like that it's a best picture, like top yeah, 10 front like runner. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't really make sense to me. I'm going to get through to that. I'm going to get to that, but not right now, because what I want to talk about in a non-spoiler way is what holds this movie back for me is how good Knives Out is. Like people are yeah. naturally comparing this movie to the diamond in the rough that 2019's Knives Out was. And I'm really high on that movie. So I that comparison throws me off because Glass Onion is so different to me than me Knives too. Out. And I think I'm naturally in defense mode when it comes to comparing the two movies. Like I'm like, how could you compare Glass Onion to Ryan Johnson's Knives Out? And I'm like, oh wait, Ryan Johnson also did Glass Onion. It feels like I'm comparing <laughs> wildly, weirdly and wildly two different movies. And without sounding reductive to the success of Glass Onion, because I probably am being too harsh, 
I think the massive positive reaction to this newest Johnson film is making Knives Out almost underrated. Yeah, like what? Yeah, because <laughs> I've listened to tons of pods and I've read a lot of reviews saying Glass Onion is maybe the best movie he's made since like Looper or Brick. And that's crazy to me um, because Knives Out was so iconic when it came out. So I don't know. I, I just don't see that. Yeah, I, I when I was like listening to podcasts and just reading reviews of Glass Onion, I was feeling like really defensive because I saw all these takes of it being better than Knives Out. And like, of course, everyone can have their preferences and maybe they liked uh, some of the, I guess, heightened characters in this more, but We'll get into to, that. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. Okay, we'll definitely get into it. But there are so many reasons why Knives Out is a better movie and mystery to me. Um, okay, we'll get to that. Yeah, I was about to say, we're going to step on our literal <laughs> long Continue podcast we're having today okay. about it. Um, but I think the success, though, pretty quickly here of, of Glass Onion is more of an indicator that people want to escape at the movies right now. I think it's kind of a time capsule for where we are because Banshees of Inishirin, Tar, Armageddon Time, after Sun, Bones oh and All, The Fablemans. These are all movies at, at the theaters over the past few weeks and even some of them right now that are all have either struggled or are consistently struggling right now in the box office. And all those movies are really good, if not great yeah. for some of them. But Glass Onion, and only one week in theaters because it's not coming out to Netflix until December 23rd, I think. It made more movie, 15, or sorry, it made more money around 15 to $16 million dollars more than any of those six films combined. Wow. Combined. Wait, really? Yes. Wow. Combined. I think somebody might call me out on being off by $1.52 million, but I mean, it's close enough. Like that's insane. And I think the success of Glass Onion financially and now critically to me is more of an indicator of the moment that we want to kind of escape and go to the theater, especially on like Thanksgiving day was when like, I think it came out or at least when a lot of people saw it. So I'll get into what works and what doesn't work for me about Glass Onion, but still it's number five. I think it's a good movie, but the next four are just very good. Number four, Star Wars, The Last Jedi. The Star Wars movie that divided us all was The Last Jedi. Should I talk about this on the podcast, Kels, or will we just like get <laughs> taken mean? off our platforms? Oh yeah, we should preface any kind of Star Wars talk. Please don't hate us. Yeah. Um, we, <laughs> I, we said this in another pod. We want to say that we are Star Wars um, fans, but not, uh, experts. Yeah. Well, that's important <laughs> to note with every IP, I guess, but okay. So this movie is like, if we found out Luke Skywalker was a libertarian, or maybe if we found out <laughs> like Jesus was a libertarian, or maybe he was like big anti-government guys, I guess just Jesus and Luke. No, it's no. not true. That's impossible! Search your feelings. You know it to be true. No! No! So, I fall in both camps on The Last Jedi. It's probably the best Star Wars film since the original trilogy. I think it's better than Revenge of the Sith. I think it's better than Force Awakens. It's probably a notch above Rogue One. And I think it's probably probably my fourth or third favorite Star Wars film. At least that's how I feel right now after not watching a single Star Wars movie since The Rise of Skywalker. Uh, but it's good. Yeah, I mean, I love The Last Jedi. Yeah, and weirdly, The Last Jedi is actually the only Ryan Johnson film I didn't return to when prepping for this podcast because I've seen it like five times. Yeah, well, also, you like to treat movies kind of like 
like songs or like snacks that you love, like you don't want to watch them too much yeah, because you don't want to get sick of them. I'm the opposite of the person who's like, I listen to the same song or eat the same snack like for my whole entire life. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't do that because I'll get sick of it. It'll make me sad. But yeah, I'm of two minds here. The Last Jedi is simultaneously the anti-fundamentalist Star Wars movie, but it's also not. It's the anarchist Star Wars movie, but it's also not. It's the movie where Luke is flawed, but he's also not that flawed. And I think that's the biggest problem with The Last Jedi is that Ryan Johnson loves Star Wars, <laughs> which is why it's so great and why I think it can never live up to the first three or struggles to. Or, and it's better than the other movies. So I think it's like obviously top tier, but it struggles to get to that top three for me because I don't know how to explain it more without making this The Last Jedi podcast, but... I'll put on my CEO hat for a second because the reason The Last Jedi works is because Ryan Johnson is cynical and he's subversive for those reasons of genre, which is why he makes The Last Jedi so different and why he creates a complex Luke. And that that really matters. And I think Lucasfilm and Disney should probably see, I'm putting my CEO hat on, hat on here, so I'm kind of making a lot of takes here. But hopefully they see through Ryan Johnson's work on The Last Jedi that they need to hire like a seriously cynical director who appreciates Star Wars and for like what it is and its messages, but wants to make another film that is not like other Star Wars movies. Interesting. Kind of like Denis Villeneuve did with Dune and kind of tried to change science fiction a little bit and what we're used to, because I don't think we're supposed to like that Timothy Chalamet character too much. I think Paul Atreides is going to have a rough character arc and uh, much rougher than what Luke had on screen with Last Jedi. In all fairness to Ryan Johnson, it did seem like he was hoping for whatever movie came after The Last Jedi that they were going to go even darker than what he was trying to do, which is cool. But I am afraid of Star Wars getting too camp. I'm afraid of it getting too comedic, too self-referential, too self-aware. I'm hoping for a more complicated writer or director on future movies. And I know that Ryan Johnson actually confirmed he's still on track to make a Star Wars trilogy, and I think that's really exciting. Yeah, I really want to see that. But I'd love to see someone who was, maybe this is just me being cynical, but kind of out on Star Wars that used to love it, and wants to turn it into a different, like kind of a different direction. They have a Star Wars chip on their shoulder. Yeah, that would be really cool for someone to be like, yeah, I haven't seen a good Star Wars movie since, or like I've seen one good Star Wars movie since like the 80s. Like that'd be nice. And I haven't seen Andor yet, so you know, I could be wrong about everything I'm saying. I'll, I'll stop here because frankly, my opinion doesn't really matter when it comes <laughs> to Star Wars, and I'm very aware of that. So nobody get angry at me. These yeah. are just like <laughs> my opinions on my experience with Star Wars, but. Like I said, I'm probably wrong about everything here. (laughs) My favorite Star Wars product actually is not even a film. It's a video game. Shout out to my KOTOR fans out there. Knights of the Old Republic. Both of them for you normal listeners. Also Battlefront 2. BB-8 all day. I'll see anybody on Kashyyyk. (laughs) Let's do this. I am also a fan of uh, Battlefront. I haven't played. I haven't played any like, I guess, video games that are, what do you call them when they're a, a story? Like a RPG game? Like a, a narrative game? Sure. Uh, yeah, I haven't yeah. played that. But I do love Battlefront. Um, should we tell the listeners our, our Battlefront characters? Let's do it. What two are you going to pick? <laughs> I'm Kylo and Luke okay. because I'm basic. <laughs> you want the strongest characters. No, yeah. I, I think that's fair. I love BB-8 uh, just for fun now. Once you get so good at Battlefront, you're like, I'm just going to play. I mean, we're not so good. but we're like so good. We spent a lot of hours uh, <laughs> over the past few years playing Battlefront 2 with friends. And um yeah, that's probably something that's like a pandemic issue. But uh, yeah, I'd say Leia. I'm big on Leia. She's great. This is not good podcast content. We'll keep going. Okay. All right. Um, 
Anyways, it's so weird how deeply connected we all are to Star Wars lore and iconography that I'm just like, yeah, Disney, you know what? Fuck it. Hire someone who hates Star Wars on to direct <laughs> Star Wars movies because they're getting too romantic about themselves and they're too stale. But also, I can name like 15 planets in the Star Wars <laughs> and I can tell you what my favorite kyber crystals are. Like, that's pretty wild. That just like a fan like an, i would say i'm a normal fan maybe i'm not a normal fan i don't know maybe i'm a bigger like fan above, than i think above average above average but even that scares me to say that because somebody listening right now is going this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about <laughs> talking about ryan johnson about the last jedi anyways we should probably stop there with star wars so that was number four the last jedi number three brick so this is like a neo-noir chinatown high school detective mystery I can't wait for you to watch it, Kelsey, because it's also none of those things. <laughs> wait, it's set in a high school? Kind of. Okay. Yeah, yes, it is. But the characters don't know that, if that makes okay. sense. It's really <laughs> funny. Uh, it almost feels like a spoof or a parody of those elements. And I actually think Glass Onion is more like Brick in its meta text than anything Knives Out is, which is interesting. It's hmm. so layered in okay. Brick. I feel like the movie was made by like five directors. Like it's Lynchian, there's Edgar Wright elements, Wes Anderson, Soderbergh. There's a lot of different influences. And I think this movie puts Ryan Johnson on the map. I've actually never seen a film edited this way before. And I know Ryan Johnson, if you probably heard that, he'd be like, yeah, because it's the only movie I've edited and it's terrible. But it is the only movie he's edited and it's not terrible to me. It's like sensory overload in moments. It's very maximalist. There are tons of clever like slow-mo moments that are then sped up at random times and i don't know how much of that was like budgeting effects but it makes the movie really unique and the experience feel very singular so it was like jarring but it worked yeah really jarring but it worked you know what it felt you remember that movie wanted with mm -hmm. james mcavoy yes you know the kind of the slow keyboard yes the volatile experiences in, in that scene. sequence imagine a whole movie but like a $500,000 budget of whatever budget that was. That seemed like it was like a $15 million, $20 million budget for Wanted. So yeah, like something that was more indie. And that's what this movie felt like. It was incredibly chaotic. It felt classic because of that. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is phenomenal. He has this like focused swagger and snappy banter that feels like an SNL skit. Did you just say swagger and and uh, Joseph, Joseph uh, Gordon-Levitt in the same sentence? I know that sounds weird. <laughs> I know because he's the opposite. I just picture him like 500 days of summer. I like, swear to all the gods. Cool. If you watch this movie and you see the way he's acting, you're going to be like, who is this actor? It's probably my favorite performance he's had, which is crazy. Wow. Because it's one of his first movies, if not his first one, I think. So... Yeah, he's great in this. And like I said, the the script feels like an SNL skit. And it feels like Aaron Sorkin wrote the dialogue, but from a 40s or 50s mentality. It's so weird. It's <laughs> darkly funny. But it takes all the absurdities of the movie so seriously. You know how Benoit Blanc is like a caricature or he's playing a comedic. It's like a Daniel Craig's playing a comedic role, but he takes it so seriously. Yeah. That's what this movie is, but dial that up to 12. Like, okay. It's really wow. intense. And, you know... It's so taken so seriously that I feel like there probably wasn't even a gag reel. I can't wait to get this on DVD. I, I really love this movie. It rules. I can't wait to rewatch it again. Um, cool. So that's my number. I'm excited to watch that one too. Yeah, that's my number three. And I think number two I've struggled with because I keep putting Brick at number two and then switching this and switching when I'm about to put number two at number three. But I'm going to keep it here. Number two, Knives Out. I'll get to this in my extra credits, but one of my favorite movies ever is Clue. And I know there are tens of movies or stories that have inspired Knives Out and Glass Onion. Obviously, Agatha Christie and Alfred Hitchcock were huge inspirations. Your, you know, listeners are probably thinking of their own favorite mystery movies that have probably inspired Ryan Johnson's films. 
but I knew I was going to love Knives Out immediately when I saw the trailer back in 2019 because of my relationship to Clue, the film, and frankly, even just the board game, which is unquestionably the best board game ever made. Nobody come for me on that. Yeah, I, I don't know is. if we have said that on the podcast before, but Trey is like a number one Clue fan. What do you think about a Clue podcast? Should we do a board game podcast, like a live? A live? No, that would be people the can slowest play with us. podcast. We can tell people to go get their little papers and then we, they can like try to figure it out with yeah, us. Yeah, but then they have no role. I guess you're right. What if we put it a live video? We could take, we took a camera and put it over the board and then they could watch it during the pod like live. So And just watch us play Clue. No. That would be the most boring content ever. Do you know how slow Clue is? And then they Free don't ideas. Get, and then Hasbro. they don't get to see our like checkboard. Um but I will say that like the last time I we played Clue, mm-hmm. um I won. Okay. Calm, and I'm still riding on that high. <laughs> I'm sure our total record would tell a different story, but that's fine. That is true. But, you know, I feel like Clue is such an involved long game. Um, it feels so it, – it's a different different type of win. Yeah. You know? It's the long con for like three hours. You're just lying to your closest friends. <laughs> All right. I know some people probably think it's a hot take to have knives out over brick or maybe even glass onion at this point. Who knows? After <laughs> no. reading some of these reviews. but. I think Knives Out has become, like me and Kelsey have said, really underrated. And if not underrated, just underappreciated because it did make a lot of money and it was critically successful. But, you know, Knives Out, one of my favorite movies. Yeah. And, okay, huge fan of Knives Out. We're going to talk about it in just like a couple minutes here. But I didn't think it was underrated at all. Like I've always heard people say they're Knives Out fans. It was actually just in... um, I'm watching the show, The Sex Lives of College Girls, and there was a Knives Out joke. Like, uh, these people at a party were like... It's already being referenced? <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Um, they are like, I like Knives Out. Me too. And so I did not think it was over- Is that a Gen Z show? All. Is that like people in college? I don't think it's a Gen Z show. I feel like the... I know, but are the characters Gen Z? Sorry. Not like, are the audience... Is the audience Gen Z? They... Okay. I think they're... Uh, so it's written by Mindy... Uh, Kaling. 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 Yeah. And uh, so I feel like it has more of a millennial lens. Yeah. Um, but it's written in sort of Gen Z, like uh, some sort of like rhetoric politics. Like banter? Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. But it mostly feels millennial. And like... Uh, well, that's incredible that Timothy they reference Knives Out. sister is one of the main characters Pauline. in it. And it's so interesting to see the like... They both have this really like uh, breathy yeah. thing that works when they're delivering their lines. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> Knives Out, I didn't think it was underrated, but I cannot believe the disrespect I am hearing about Glass Onion being like way better. And I'm excited to talk about it because now I'm I'm feeling defensive and I feel like it's underrated. Do you think Ryan Johnson thinks like he, like, I don't think he set out, nobody sets out to make a better movie than the one previously, but the amount of like, time he spent thinking about knives out versus glass onion is wildly different like from what i understand he's thought about knives out for years mm-hmm. but he wrote glass onion at the beginning of the pandemic so like that that switch there is so big so to hear people be like you know what didn't work for me in knives out is this but what works more for me in glass onion i'd be if i was saying i'd be like <laughs> what are you kidding me uh like i don't like to compare my movies but come like on baby yeah i will say like glass onion good knives out great what's been what's been proved the past year is that Kenneth Branagh's Praro movies like Death on the Nile is that it's so fucking hard to make whodunits it's very difficult and I feel like Ryan Johnson you know if one of these movies is underappreciated sure but it's probably Ryan Johnson who's underappreciated because it is really difficult to make movies in this genre and also like great outfits the film or the digital uh shots look like film and the way they edited it so there's so many different small things and knives out that deserve like 
shout outs like that. it deserves its own podcast which yes. is an idea for later for us yeah I, w- I will be up for a deep dive into knives out any day all right let's talk number one looper so this has been the biggest surprise of my movie year so far i'm actually really excited to be talking about it because i just saw this movie for the first time like a week ago and it was one of my bottle of wine movies that which i don't think i've ever talked about on the podcast like this concept that i created for myself <laughs> that i missed when it came out uh, whenever it came out like uh, 10 years ago and I've been saving it for a long time now. Kelsey hasn't seen it either because she was, uh, she didn't watch it with me either because she was doing her PhD application. So I watched this alone. I'm excited to rewatch it to see if she loves it like I did. And, and this was the one I, I came in and it looked like um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt had like contacts in. He's completely CGI'd. Okay. Like his face is CGI'd. All right. Yeah, I I haven't seen it at all. That was just one time I walked in the room and I was like, what is going on? (laughs) Honestly, I'm still not convinced a lot of people have seen this movie because it's rarely brought up about with, you know, when people talk about some of the best sci-fi of this century, I don't hear its name. So without spoiling the plot of it, I'll just say that Looper is the most underrated science fiction movie I've seen in a long time. Okay. And with all the love that directors like Christopher Nolan gets for Interstellar and Tenet, which I like those movies... I can't believe Looper wasn't and isn't a bigger deal. It made a lot of money. I think it made like three times its budget, maybe more. I think maybe around that that number. But I just don't hear it talked about. Maybe it is. Maybe people are talking about it often, but I don't see it on any list. By the way, I should note so no one thinks I'm crazy for never seeing Looper until like a week ago because we have a movie podcast. If I critically, uh, if I miss a critically acclaimed movie for work or personal reasons, I really do file that movie away as like a bottle of wine, like in a cabinet somewhere, unless it's like an absolute necessity that I watch it, which now that we have a podcast, it probably is an absolute necessity (laughs) that I watch every great movie. Uh, Like for example, for speaking of Nolan, he has two bottle of wine movies for me. Memento, which is one of his first films, if not his, I think second movie Mm -hmm. and Dunkirk. Yeah. I've never seen those movies and I'll visit those for the first time before Oppenheimer, which I'm so excited for, which comes out the same day as Barbie, apparently Greta Gerwig's film. So we're going to have a huge, definitely a double feature July, whenever that is. Uh, So we're going to tackle this filmography in the summer. I'm really excited for that. But those two movies I'm excited to check out. So yeah. Although Oppenheimer has a really long runtime, right? I think it's like two and a half hours. Okay. Well, I was just thinking, because if they come out on the same day, we're definitely going to see them back to back. So I'm just thinking about how 100% we're living or we're going to be sitting in the theater. Yeah. One of my goals is to have Greta Gerwig on this podcast. So that might be the first. That is a a big goal. (laughs) Yeah. We have a couple of big goals here. Okay. Just to repeat my soft ranking of Ryan Johnson's films. Number six, The Brothers Bloom. Number five, Glass Onion. Number four, The Last Jedi. Number three, Brick. Number two, Knives Out. And number one, Looper. The spot I don't feel good about on this list is Brick. That might be number two. Interesting. I might have butchered that. Whatever, you know, I don't know. Who cares? This is a soft ranking. (laughs) We'll come back to this for Knives Out Mystery number three in like two years. Apparently, there's going to be a third movie. Yeah, and then I'll watch all the other movies I need to. I think I'll have a ton of fun doing that. Uh, Apparently, there's going to be a third movie in a few years, but they've been talking about maybe four or five movies. Ryan Johnson said he'll make- I would love that. I'll I'll watch- He said he'll make as many as he'll let him make. That's awesome. Yeah, that's best case scenario. Yeah, and he said that he hasn't started writing the third one yet. Like he just finished. He needs a little bit of time to like collect- after Glass Onion, and he's yeah. gonna start writing. Yeah, take your time. Yeah. I mean, he's young, like, he's got time. This yeah. is exciting. All right, let's jump into the extra credits of Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. Harlan started out with a rusty Smith Corona and built himself into one of the best selling mystery writers of all time. 
30 languages, over 80 million copies sold. You guys fans? I mean, I don't do much fiction reading myself. Big but... fan. I'm a big fan. Who is that guy? Uh, Mr. Blanc is a private investigator of great renown. I read a tweet about a New Yorker article about you. You're famous. The night of his demise, the family had gathered to celebrate your father's 85th birthday. <laughs> And your son, Ransom, did he attend as well? Yes, but he left early. I think Linda was upset. Walt would get a little Irish courage in him. He'd get into it with Harlan. What? Richard said what? Are you baiting me, detective? Attempting to be thorough so we can figure out the manner of death. You mean if someone killed him? <laughs> you think one of us, one of his family, Walt, Walt. killed him? Mr. Blanc, I just buried my father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I suspect foul play. I have eliminated no suspects. Harlem was cleaning house. Everyone in the family has possible motives. Was Harlan planning on cutting off Joni? Did he plan to fire Walter? Is Richard having an affair? That's some heavy-duty conjecture. Funny, Ransom, you skipped the funeral, but you're early for the will reading. Up your ass. Very nice. Oh, Ransom. Ransom. I gotta do this more often. The family is truly desperate. When people get desperate, the knives come out. This is a twisted web. And we are not finished untangling it. Not yet. Keep waiting for the big reveal. All of them lied to me. There is one guilty party behind it all. You know something. Spill it. Oh, my God. Tell me what happened to my grandfather. I think you have something you want to tell me. 2019's Knives Out. Kelsey, this movie's awesome. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so good. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that stand out to me in every viewing when I come back to this. And uh, I think, obviously, first of all, it's a whodunit. It's the mystery element that attracts people with Knives Out. But really, I think what keeps people coming back is the writing of the characters. And in the case of Knives Out, it's this ensemble of stars we have mm -hmm. here. Especially on first <laughs> watch, you're just kind of, like, inundated by stars. Like, there's so many in every angle of the, every shot. And by the final act, I felt like I knew each character so well because you could feel the actors had created such a backstory for each character. Yeah. Like they were all imbued with so much history. <laughs> and that's really odd because I was so interested in everyone's background and all their motivations as individual characters, a part of this thromby family in Knives Out. And everybody had like less than 10 minutes of screen time. It's just Michael Shannon as Walt who had like 14 minutes and Chris Evans who had like 20 something. They are the only two characters who exceed 10 minutes, which is so crazy because in my head... I see Tony Collette and Jamie Lee Curtis killing every scene for what feels like half the movie, but in reality, they're in Knives Out for like five minutes total, which is wild. Wait, that's a real like stat? Yeah. They are? Yes. And, wow. It's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah, because like I just watched it for the second time recently before we went to see Glass Onion, and I didn't really fully remember the ending of the movie I knew that like maybe the families weren't the family wasn't a part of it but I and maybe Marta was but I didn't fully I mm -hmm. guess just know if the family members were involved or not um and I was consistently looking to see if they were guilty because they were playing their roles so well like I 
they all had a motive that was believable and they were all really like super specific and exaggerated, but also (laughs) represented real hypocrisies that uh, for people. And also there was like that grounded uh, family conflict with the siblings and like just talking shit about each other behind (laughs) their backs in the interviews with uh, the detectives and being like jealous of each other and with status and that's so crazy because the writing's also so funny. Like, and they kill the lines. Like Tony Collette, she says this She's line. She's incredible. So good. She's like, wait a minute. I read a tweet about a New Yorker <laughs> article about you. Uh, and I, I just loved all their performances. Like I want to rewatch it to look at a different character each time. Yeah. I might watch it tonight. It's really an amazing movie. And they even mentioned, I think it might be Tony Collette. I forget who it is. They mentioned another case that Benoit Blanc is known for. Like they do in glass onion too. Oh yeah. The New Yorker article. Okay. Yeah. Like we don't get into the history of Benoit Blanc's like life in either of these movies. We just get like kind of hints at the myth building of, of Benoit Blanc. And I love that they never do a backstory for him because Ryan Johnson has talked about how boring that is, which to me is the worst parts of the newest Poirot films. And I love Poirot, like everything the BBC did with those movies over the past 20, 30 years, the kind of like TV movies. I love those, but those are always the worst parts of those as well as these Branagh like Poirot films. Yeah. But I feel like, so if we got something like six, 10, you know, knives out stories, mysteries, from that's Johnson, deserved. That's deserved. Then though. I feel like I really think that he could do a successful backstory of Blanc's history. Yeah. I would be so interested in seeing like his childhood or, or like a, you know, yeah. Pick well, of the of problem Blanc. with Kenneth Branagh's movie is that the second one, the death on the Nile, which is one of the worst movies this year. I think it's my bottom three. Yeah. It, I honestly felt me like too. I was like, this is like offensive to me. Like I, <laughs> I love this story and you're ruining it. Um, but the first 10 minutes of the movie are just like his backstory, right? In a war. Isn't it like Poirot, like young Poirot, and it's all CGI'd, his face is all CGI'd. And I remember being like, what is this? This is a mystery (laughs) movie on a boat and like a destination place. Like you're going to Egypt. This is nowhere like Egypt. Where are we? And then when we finally get to Egypt, it's just all CGI and green screen. I'm like, what the That's what I'm saying. It felt like it was made in the 2000s. It felt like a worse like version of The Mummy. Yes. Oh, that's depressing. Okay. Another obvious thing. But I mean, I still watch it. Like I have fun. Yes. Okay. But (laughs) another obvious thing that stood out in my first viewing was Anna de Armas. She is incredible. And this is how we're kind of introduced. Wait, it's Anna? Anna de Armas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've always heard it on. People say Anna, but okay. I looked it up. She said Anna de Armas. And by the way, okay. when she says Anna de Armas, it is very different than the way I say Anna de Armas. Okay. Like I'm saying her first name right, but de Armas, the way she says it, just go YouTube it. There's like a seven minute clip of just her saying her name because people are weird on YouTube. Okay. So, I mean, it's an I just want to make sure clip. I'm saying it right. All no, right. Yeah, you're fine. So, this is how I met Dearmis, which is surprising, I think, probably to a lot of people, because I actually don't like she was in War Dogs, but I don't recall her being in War Dogs. Like she was Miles Teller's oh, like girlfriend I, or, or totally fiance forgot. or wife or whatever, but I don't really remember her too much in that movie. So this is my relationship to kind of like the beginning of Dearmis in like Hollywood. And once you get past the kind of Daniel Craig, James Bond playing a Southern eccentric detective. I realized on rewatch of Knives Out how remarkable Dearmas is in this movie. Not just the character of Marta, but also like her tragic situation with her family and her performance just kind of grounds Knives Out in a really powerful way. I think Mm -hmm. in a more emotional way than any of Ryan Johnson's movies because none of them are that sentimental, at least to me. I mean, there are moments of it. In Looper, I did tear up at the end of it. Maybe that makes, I don't know, maybe nobody else 
feels that way, but there's only a few emotional experiences I've had in Ryan Johnson's movies, but De Armas really makes me invested for emotional reasons. And yeah. you don't get that in Glass Onion. And so you kind of have De Armas as this like emotional spine of Knives Out. And I was really worried in the trailers for Glass Onion that that would be the missing element. And I think that is the missing element. There, is, there isn't a character with a bunch of themes underpinning their motivations like Marta in Glass Onion. Yeah, I agree. I think I'll talk about that when we get to Glass Onion. But yeah. for Marta, like I thought this was the most successful like piece of this mystery story that made it unique because you're mm-hmm. wanting the audience to not want the mystery to be solved. Right. right. Like we're rooting for Marta. And I think it was like very clever because when we got to that mud scene, I was like, oh no, like they're going to find the tracks, right? I'm yeah. rooting against the the mystery. Exactly. And that's so cool. And I and remember also when we have the actual scene where she, you know, gives Harlan the wrong medicine, it was like really emotional. Yeah. Um. And, and I think you're right. Like that was the missing piece of Glass Onion that was so successful in Knives Out that was like really, um, I was so invested in the story. They tried to recreate that element. I'm not going to spoil Glass Onion, but there is a moment where they try to recreate that kind of like emotional investment with uh, Benoit Blanc and another character in Glass Onion when something happens. Right, yeah. And we'll also, when we get to Glass Onion, we'll give you a spoiler warning. Um, so that way, if you haven't seen right. it, that way you can go see it and, and come back to it. But we're not going to We do have like a lot of, I know everybody's busy. We, we all have lives. We all have vacations. We're all working. But we, I, from what I understand, the listeners that we have, we got some film ads here. So I'm assuming a lot of people have seen this movie. Yeah. So stick around so, for yeah. our spoilers. All right. Back on that point you just made about her relationship to, is it Harlan? Yeah, it's Harlan, mm-hmm. right? They have such a fascinating dynamic because we weren't fully aware of how pure their relationship was. It's just the family talking about their relationship. And you couldn't tell how much of like that dynamic they had was like a hierarchy that was kind of like toxic. Mm -hmm. And they show a scene in knives out where they're like playing board games. And it was just an incredibly nice scene. Yeah. And just, you don't see a lot of that in Ryan Johnson's movies. So again, that kind of sentimentality is just not in his film. So I love seeing that in here. And I think it's honestly just like weighed down or, De Armas has the weight of that on her shoulders and she does so well. And outside of the performances and the characters in Knives Out, obviously the screenplay is basically flawless for a whodunit and it represents this kind of like bizarre dialogue that we come back to Ryan Johnson for each time. His screenplay was even nominated for an Academy Award, which never happens in movies like this. So he's gotten a lot of love for the film and that screenplay. And I think Glass Onion is sort of a reaction to that love and we'll get to that. But I think it's the direction and the depth that Johnson finds in each scene through his staging that gives me a new viewing experience each go. Because Kelsey, I don't know how you feel, but in rewatching this for a third or fourth time, I'm noticing more specific things in his direction and writing. It's like every set piece is so meticulously crafted. The home is almost like a puzzle that they're playing in. And a lot of the rooms that that they're in in the home, they were actually built uh, in production. And so like they added onto this house to give it more of a puzzle Uh, element and everything feels so purposely placed even on the walls the colors the paintings the furniture the outfits of the characters all the aesthetic is so appealing but also distracting Mm -hmm. which is so smart given that this is a mystery and it also makes it all feel very lived in and gives it a weighty vibe yeah you're i think you're so right because the like 
the opening door, right? The trap door. Oh, I forgot the about secret, that. Yeah, yeah. Way up to the study. Like Harlan has having two rooms, having like the old woman in the window and being like, <laughs> ransom back again. You know, like yeah. it feels so elevated and like, I don't know, uh, animated, yeah. but it's so fun. You're right. It is like a clue house. Yeah. And finally, like I said, aside from all the technical aspects, aside from Ryan Johnson's like masterful ability to subvert us with this mystery whodunit, obviously choosing Daniel Craig to play Benoit Blanc, which is basically a borderline parody, is really smart because the audience just sees James Bond when they look at Craig. So he's like very animated as this Southern detective <laughs> on purpose. And I genuinely, Kelsey, I don't know if this makes me crazy because I just forgot about the KFC joke. Like, or stupid. I don't know if I sound stupid, but I didn't know he was like a Southern American until Glass Onion. I legitimately oh, thought- Oh, like you didn't know the character. Yeah. I thought he was, was like, like had this weird European accent or something. Like I honestly had no idea that, but then I heard the KFC joke from uh, Chris Evans, the oh, Louisiana okay. joke and mm -hmm. I, or Mississippi, whatever. And I just did not pick up on that. Yeah. He, he says it in, I guess when he introduces himself yeah. in knives out but i didn't catch it until the second viewing either and i think maybe because he's like benoit blanc that's what it is maybe and yeah. yeah it's like and it's the also daniel French, craig, and then daniel the craig yeah. exactly so i think i i had like similar i didn't know where he was from but i totally agree it's so funny uh specifically like a really smart casting because he is james bond yes but then also even within the writing i just love knives out writing so much um and and we'll talk about how glass onion was going on similar like jokes or yeah. similar kind of really funny writing themes but it didn't land as well as knives out well it's good like there were some things with uh Blanc where he's like well for myself if I if I do say so myself <laughs> and he like it's just all these amazing yeah. like pieces of writing that of taking himself seriously and like playing on that idea it was awesome yeah let's get into some of those themes because I feel like we could talk about this movie and the characters for like too long probably uh so Ryan Johnson leaves a lot in both Knives Out and Glass Onion for us to laugh at politically, like you're saying. And in every movie, those those kind of political jokes are kind of an appetizer for something more complex each mm -hmm. time. For example, when Johnson writes the Thromby family in Knives Out as a vehicle to understand something darker, it makes the movie have layers. Like there's this toxicity at the heart of this family as like these capitalists in the United States mm -hmm. who are these establishment liberals possibly or moderate conservatives and maybe basically Johnson is critiquing both of these groups of people. Like no moderate is safe from Johnson's pen and knives out. And that's why the script is so special. And he sort of critiques the moral righteousness of people in the United States who believe in meritocracy. There's a lot of good spicy dialogue there about that, especially those who vote with their wallet and not for the well-being of others. And, you know, this is kind of bordering on my extra credit. So I might as well just get into it. I think what deserves extra credits about knives out is that, it's really captivating and special in its observations about the way that Thrombies, the whole family, victimizes and reduces Marta to a prejudice-filled stereotype. And by marginalizing or othering Marta this way, the Thrombies get to act culturally superior mm -hmm. and at times fully racist and like ethnocentric to her. And in a Trump America, when this movie was or the script was written in like 2017 and coming out in 2019, that is a really contemporary move to make and kind of a like not just like a spicy move to make, but that's like a concern for like the box office. Like you're going to yeah. be pushing audiences, not just like, like we're talking, cause there's obviously 
not a lot of like overtly racist people like that the neo-nazi kid in this movie coming to theaters to go see knives out but the movie is really critiquing moderates and that's like a huge portion of the audience in these theaters watching these movies so that was pretty impressive and i feel like he should be commended for that because that is a that's a chance and we see this like really toxic dynamic really clearly between the thrombies and marta when they are treating her differently like there's a shift in how they treat her when she gets the will because they initially speak about her as part of the family until she actually becomes part of the family Mm -hmm. and the will which is really smart it like kind of outlines that she's gonna receive most of the family's wealth in the will and then this pseudo inclusive family is unveiled as this bigoted group of vultures who are gonna like (laughs) turn on her otherwise i leave in their entirety to marta cabrera my entire ownership of Blood Like Wine Publishing, I leave in its entirety to Marta Cabrera. The copyright of its catalog, likewise, I leave in its entirety to Marta Cabrera. Uh, no. That's not, no. that's, no, that can't be. No. Can I see that, please, Alan? Yeah, that's right. Please. This can't be legal. It's right. He's, you know, he's been... Oh, my God. He's been... He's been... I don't know what to say. We're his family, so... <laughs> it's not possible. There's safeguards against this. Right. Fine. Something. I think he's going to You know, Alan, listen. You know, he was on medication. Wait to medication. I mean, I don't know. Alan, you can take this piece of paper and shove it right up your ass and get out. And you cops, too. Out. Out. Right now. And Linda? No, Richard, we need to talk. We need to, to fight this thing. We're not going anywhere. I said get out. We are the thrombies, goddammit. This is still our house. Hmm? Oh, sorry. Uh, likewise, the house at 2 Dearborn Drive and all belongings therein, I leave to Marta Cabrera. Oh, you little bitch. You little bitch. Did you know about this? Were you in on this from the beginning? No, no, no. I just want to know. What were you? What were you doing? Were you boinking my father? Boinking? No, 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 no. I think everybody just needs to cool it. You had sex with my grandpa, you dirty anchor baby. And in the meantime, I'd maybe run. Wait, wait, wait. Now, would you please? Ladies and gentlemen, please. I don't know what's happening. I don't know why he. You guys, I'm also confused. I need to think. Marcia, are you listening? I can't catch up. I can't open the damn. And this situation, I think, is why the film deserves extra credit because it's this family versus Marta that is really just a well-written microcosm for how moderates treat people in disadvantaged socioeconomic classes, especially those trying to immigrate to the United States. And the movie becomes really interesting in that theme when it shows like Catherine Langford's character, for example, to Marta and the way she's speaking to her because she comes off as an ally, but really she wants something for Marta because she's threatened by her and her family is threatened by her. And obviously like in Tony Collette's dialogue with her too. So they're kind of showing how 
this U.S. privileged middle class voter wants everyone to succeed in the United States until, of course, they have to like compete and share resources. So Knives Out kind of interrogating these ideas and whether or not this Thrombi family actually wants new neighbors, like they say, or in this case, literally new family members and how they treat Marta when their wealth is threatened is really just a genius critique on how moderates can't stand to share wealth and opportunity with with anyone, even if they bl- vote blue or act righteous. Yeah. So I love all those aspects. I mean, it's like really cool to see somebody be unapologetically critiquing just like an identity of the country that was so hypocritical at the time still is but especially at the time because that's really the paradox of the u.s's identity and the whole world knows it we're a country built on like terror and genocide and we act as if we were built on immigration and hard work and because of that retelling of history people argue that americans love immigration when really in our roots our culture has shown us time and time again that the average american wants to wipe away our neighbors when their status quo of their life is in question and neighbors become competition in that way, not family. And so there are some deeply dark themes that are just successfully mm-hmm. weaved throughout Knives Out that really don't get enough credit that I really, I don't think you have to over-intellectualize either. Like Knives Out, it's all there on yeah, the Yeah, and it's done with humor. Yeah, and that's really important because he's not trying to come off as condescending because the themes are complex. They are morally and politically divisive. And... He, you know, he did take the chance of like talking about the poison of our culture by being a little bit preachy, which I don't think this movie comes off because he's really funny. Yeah. And I think also just visually, because we kept talking about the way that the, the scenes are layered. Mm-hmm. When we see the family like staring at her or cornering her, yeah. there are all these layers of, of their faces. And because each one of the actors has such a specific character, like even when they're staring at her, their hyper elevated character is like on their face. Yeah. They're, and which is wild. So like their performances even are, are kind of adding to that, like demonstrating these like, different identities that participate in this system. Like even in that shot where it's just, you see the whole family they're layered looking at Marta. Yeah. You are getting themes, which is, I mean, I feel like really hard to do, but it feels seamless. It's really difficult. And also additionally to that, and that's why those performances are so good. In the first 15 minutes, when you're introduced to all these characters, and by the way, an incredible scene where Benoit Blanc is sitting in the back and the detectives are interviewing the whole family, the Thromby family, and Lakeith Stanfield is one of the detectives. Oh my God. All that is incredible, but... I'm sure some audience members, especially those who are around the same age of this family, were relating to different stars. They were singing these characters, like oh, Jamie Lee okay, Curtis's yeah. character, Tony Collette, like all these different characters. Uh, and I-, I think that makes the movie even more of a subtle critique on like morally upright people. I remember seeing this in theaters and there were more people who laughed at the white supremacist kid in the bathroom joke than like other jokes. You know, the kid played by Jaden Martell from mm-hmm. the kid from it. Mm-hmm. But really that's just kind of like the initial joke to laugh at like a neo-Nazi kid. That is kind of like a virtue signal to liberal audiences to lure them in for more complicated questions that they're at. Like mm-hmm. Ryan Johnson is asking and provoking the audience with in terms of like uh, how people treat Marta and like how people are complicit and othering the Martas of our, our real world, which I find really smart. And I think that layer is a little bit in Glass Onion too. And you know, again, what's low key impressive is that about Marta, we don't really know anything about her as a person. We don't know any of her interests. We don't really know anything about her family. We sort of meet them at times. That's true. 
And all we really know is that the ignorant thrombies think she's like from every country in South America. Yeah. Okay. That's also a great piece of the writing too. Yeah. Really smart. It's pretty remarkable. We care about her character at all is my kind of final point about this extra credits, or at least that, that we care about her so much too, because when I hear people talk about knives out, it's usually about the performances of the house. I actually don't hear people talk about the character of Marta too much. Yeah. And, and again, I think that, the choice to have Marta and, or just, I guess her character being so fully developed, uh, in as far as an an emotional character, like we are really, uh, looking at the family through her eyes Mm -hmm. is such a smart way to, to tell a mystery and unique. Yeah. She becomes an audience surrogate, but then she becomes her own like autonomous character at the end, making like decisions for herself. But that's actually the last bit here about knives out that doesn't make the movie like perfect to me not that any movie's perfect but it's it's a really good movie but the reason it's not great to me is because marta does feel like she's missing a little bit of agency that i think the movie could have had but daniel craig is in this film and i think that might be weirdly a problem in the movie toward the end because you're kind of seeing maybe marta not have the opportunity to make the message clear about what themes are like underpinning her character and Daniel Craig is kind of doing these like white saviory things at the end of this movie. I might that might sound harsh, but he's like kind of speaking for her and she's like pouty, conflicted face in the background you're staring at for like the last 25 minutes. And that'd be my only real nitpick because she doesn't get too much to do. And then you're also having to balance like the whole ransom of it all because Chris Evans is on like a whole other planet in this mm-hmm. movie. He's doing an incredible <laughs> job playing ransom. So I think it's like tricky because if you're Johnson, you want to make sure your stars because Anna de Armas isn't actually a star at this point, but Chris Evans and Daniel Craig are, you want to make sure that they're kind of getting what their contract says they're getting, which is like this screen time at the end of the movie. But also Marta is kind of having people speak for her, which is kind of a weird. That's true. No. Yeah. I think that's a fair critique because especially when uh, there are two different scenes when Marta's like in the actual uh, I guess room with the family and Daniel Craig's like, no, you all suck. Like, yeah, you know yeah, what I yeah, mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, but it's a great scene. Yeah, it is a great scene, but I think you're, you're right. Like there are a lot of moments where she's being spoken for. Um, so that, that makes sense. That's and, fair. And do you think they could have pushed a little bit harder on the kind of themes? I know he doesn't want to seem preachy, but like, do you think they could have pushed a little bit harder? I think, I mean, yes, uh, but I think that it was there and it was yeah. it, like, it was light enough where you have mass audiences going to see it. And I think that's kind of like okay, the trick it, of the movie. It becomes something different yeah. if he pushes too hard. Yeah. Got because it. then it's like, if we, if he does go a little bit further, um, which it, I think it would be totally fine if he did. Um, it, people might be saying like, well, why didn't he go into this nuance also? Gotcha. Um, but I do want to talk about Chris Evans. Yeah, I know. I've, t- I've done a lot of talking. Do you have any points? <laughs> well, okay. I, I'm not going to say anything about the themes because okay. you did a great job. And um, I agree. I wouldn't have been able to, to put it li- like that. So yes, uh, I agree with the extra credit. I want to talk about Chris Evans though. Let's do it. Because I loved him yeah. in this movie. <laughs> He's so good. I loved him eating the biscuits in the living room. I loved that he is yeah. this like heightened villain with a fashion addiction. He's like Corella DeVille. That's funny. He's like the whole confession scene too is great. Um, like him stabbing uh Darmus. Yes. And then also like the donut within the donut. Uh, you know, Daniel Craig. Oh, the donut hole like, joke? Yeah. <laughs> I, it like, blew my mind. like, there was a hole in the donut. But no, this is actually a donut with a hole in the center. <laughs> like, it's just <laughs> so funny. Like, the whole confession scene with, with also Fran. And shout out to Eddie Patterson, who plays Judy Gemstone in The Righteous Gemstones. Anyone who listens um, and watches Righteous Gemstones. Is that Gemstones, the mom? 
No, she's the sister. Oh, she's yes, one of yes. the siblings. Gotcha. Let me know. Um, Trey hasn't watched it with me. I love the Righteous Gemstones. Right. Uh, but anyway, when she's like, Hugh did this. And oh, yeah. that's like Ransom's <laughs> real name is Hugh. And and Blanc Hugh is like, this. Uh, you know, Fran's alive. She's going to confirm that Hugh, or wait, that you, you, you. Hugh <laughs> did this. <laughs> it's just so good. Like, she said, you did this. She didn't say, you did this. She wasn't talking about me. She said, you did this. You did this. Because you made the help call you Hugh. Because you're an asshole. <laughs> and I think this is where the confession scene, uh, where Marta lies and says, like, Fran is alive, right? Uh, to trick Chris Evans to telling them or, you know, uh, confessing yeah. is kind of like a different scene in glass onion that wasn't fully successful, okay. which we'll get into. Yeah. Um, but I thought like the end of this where they're kind of laying out everything, like literally, uh, Blanc goes first, you have to do this second. You have to do this. He literally numbers it. Yeah. And it's still so fun where I think in other movies, uh, it might feel like way too explanatory and way too like holding your hand. I didn't feel like that at all. I thought it was just like a blast. I think Knives Out will age wonderfully. I'm really excited for it. And that's really rare for like movies that take the contemporary stance of trying to be a time capsule. Mm -hmm. uh, but some of the themes of this movie, they, uh, they age really well, unfortunately. Yes. So all these elements about Knives Out are great. Unfortunately, I don't think Glass Onion pushes on cultural nerves the way this movie does mm -hmm. or gets close to that at all. I don't know if it's interested in that either. If people are trying to say it is interested in that, I'm curious to hearing those thoughts. I've been trying to listen to a lot of pods and read a lot of reviews about this one because I think we're having different experiences than people like completely like viewing experiences, not whether yeah. it's good or bad, just like we're reading the movie differently, which is cool. So I like this new Knives Out mystery. Let's get to the extra credits of Glass Onion. Okay. Ah! Hello. Oh my God. Crew, we've arrived. Disruptors. Assemble! Welcome, gang. We got a great weekend. Who's that? Benoit Blanc, the detective? Mr. Prompt, I cannot overstate my gratitude to be here. When's the murder mystery start? I've invited you all to my island. Hi! Because tonight, a murder will be committed. My murder. Once you're dead, Will we still be able to talk to you? Yeah, I'm not playing dead the whole weekend, dude. Well, this is truly delightful. Across the island, I've hidden clues. You will have to closely observe each other. If anyone can name the killer, that person wins our game. Any questions? Alibari. <laughs> that has a kick. Oh my God, what happened? <gasps> Holy shit! Ladies and gentlemen, there's been a murder, and the killer is in plain sight. For at least one person, this is not a game. I must insist that nobody touch the body. Jeez, detective, who killed the party? I need to find a motive for murder. Everyone would stab a friend in the back to hold on to this rich bastard. Ooh, 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 killed it. They're all friends. Why would anyone commit murder? Are we even going to talk about the elephant in the room? Am I the elephant? Yeah, you're the elephant. You're not that bad. 
here. Are you calling me dangerous? Well, we'll see. Let it all out. Hell yeah! This is reckless. The killer wouldn't hesitate to kill again if it covers their tracks. be really great at clue huh i'm very bad at dumb things ticking boxes running around searching all the rooms it's just a terrible terrible game Twenty 2022's glass onion a knives out mystery spoiler alert do we have to have like a spoiler alert sound i don't know i feel like that's a little jarring is it corny with people's headphones you're right we won't do it we won't do it <laughs> Imagine I just put one in. I know. We won't I, do it. I literally, in that pause, I was like, you're going to do it. <laughs> you want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Okay. If you haven't seen Glass Onion. Leave. Go ahead and you can pause. Or if you want to listen to spoilers, I guess go for it, you know, uh, teach their own. Yeah. But I will say, um, or sorry, come back to it. And, and play this once you've seen it. I will say before we even start, it was so interesting to see the Netflix symbol on a huge theater screen. That's such a good point. I forgot to think about, I didn't even write that down. That was so weird. Yeah, I, did, I didn't even think about it as one of my notes today because it really is something that is jarring. It feels like I'm in the matrix or something. Like, yeah. Don't worry, darling. <laughs> I am plugged in. Uh, yeah, that made me uncomfortable. So Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. This is a film we saw on Thanksgiving Day a few weeks ago with family, which was nice. I think both Kelsey and I had a solid experience with it. And I think I liked it a bit more than you did. Is that, would you say that's true? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll get into why. So <laughs> this film presents a power structure, not unlike most whodunits, where we kind of know that the ensemble cast will be characterized as all these distinct people that we're excited to meet and get to know better, which happens pretty quick. I kind of like the opening with all of the different angles of shots, like you're seeing all the different faces in the corners mm -hmm. of the screen. And we kind of meet them even faster than I think we do characters in Knives Out. So I kind of like both introductions in both films. I like how, the, how uh, creative they are. Yeah. And I think like the individual intros of the characters in Glass Onion is what worked like best for me. It felt mm -hmm. kind of like Suicide Squad and, and the best part of the movie yes. where we're meeting all the different characters. And I love that in any movie, honestly. But I think something that's interesting I didn't even think about until now is the split screening of all the characters. Yeah. Um, I know they were FaceTiming, but literally was like a group FaceTime, which I think was interesting too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I loved like meeting all of them uh, because again, like Johnson writes really heightened characters. Yeah, they're very exaggerated. And then we're usually shown when we're giving this kind of like ensemble of characters and this kind of like power structure, this hierarchy, we're usually shown whoever's at the top of this friend hierarchy, which in this case is Edward Norton's character. Mm -hmm. And our well-informed, well-taught mystery minds know that whoever's at the top of hierarchies will probably get killed. That's pretty normal in whodunits. So that's where my mind was like 30 minutes into this movie. I think like other people, maybe people were just experiencing it like a normal average movie watcher, but I was trying to figure it out like in a very pretentious way because we're watching a whodunit. So sometimes that's fun to do. And I was like for sure that Edward Norton as Miles Brom was going to get bodied. Like I, there was no question about it because I feel like I've seen so many movies like this at the beginning. Interesting. And also he was inviting them 
to yes. his murder. Yeah, which I love those boxes. <laughs> those boxes were, it, that was such a fun part of the movie. Yeah. I could have watched that for longer. Yeah, well, what Janelle Monae's character does with the boxes, the coolest thing I've ever seen <laughs> this year because her just breaking it like that was like exactly where my mind went to. I was like, yeah, that's probably what we would do and not be able to figure that out at all. Just very relatable for the audience. So Braun, this kind of like, uh, that's Edward Norton's character, this patriarch, wealthy megalomaniac I was convinced he was going to die because, again, the traditional murder mystery, that's how that would go. But that doesn't happen in Glass Onion. And it's why I think this movie is less of a whodunit with a strong commentary like Knives Out. And it's more of a choose your own mystery and have a good time at the theater. And that might sound kind of reductive for people who really loved Glass Onion. But nothing about Glass Onion has those mystery, weighty, thematic vibes of Knives Out, nor the kind of like uh, a sleuth with great stakes because you don't have the Marta character you care for, nor do you have like a really jarring mystery with multiple different layers. I mean, there is a big subversion in this in glass, uh, glass onion that we're going to get to, but you know, there isn't anything with the stakes of knives out uh, in the mystery, nor the themes. Like there's no immigration conversations or xenophobia or capitalism. There's some wealth stuff that we're going to talk about, but you know, Glass Onion is just doing something completely different. I think what this movie is doing is kind of literally subverting us on what kind of genre it is, what kind of movie it is. Because I think it's almost like, Kelsey, you joked about this. It almost feels like a Fugazi, the Matthew (laughs) McConaughey joke from Over Wall Street. It's like Ryan Johnson wanting you to search for something that isn't there for over two hours. Nobody knows if the stock is going to go up, down, sideways, or in fucking circles. Least of all stockbrokers. It's all a Fugazi. You know what a Fugazi is? No. Fugazi, it's a fake. Yeah, Fugazi, Fugazi, it's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a fairy dust. It doesn't exist. It's never landed. It is no matter. It's not on the elemental chart. It, it's not fucking real. Right? All right. Okay. <laughs> Stay with me. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, Trey was like, uh, he turned to me in the movie and he was like, okay, so like, he wants us to know the mystery. Yeah. And then to know that we're like looking at a mystery that we know. And I was like, it's a Fugazi. It's a, it's a, it's a whatever, <laughs> whatever Matthew McConaughey says. <laughs> um, <Nice>. But <laughs> yeah, to your point, I think about not having the, the same emotional investment. We care, I guess, more about finding out who killed Janelle Monet's character because we want to see her get justice, right? So Okay, well said. Yeah, I was we, struggling to say that. Yeah. yeah, so we do have some emotional tie, right? Because uh we want to see we want to see who is responsible for her death. Mm-hmm. But and also for obviously like being wronged, mm-hmm. right? But we don't spend any time with her character, so there isn't that emotional thread where like we see the whole story through Marta's character in the other movie. Yeah. And so I think, you know, it's not the same, like, like you're saying that emotional spine throughout the movie. I will say though, that there was a part where I was like, oh my God, I like, I I felt a really a a big emotional moment when the sister got killed. They showed her getting shot the second time. Yeah. That was weirdly sad because it wasn't that connected to her yet. Right. Um, but I was like, oh my God, like two sisters are going to be killed in this. That's tragic. Mm -hmm. Um, but quickly, you know, it became like the hot sauce joke. And then she, (laughs) you know, which I was like, you know, squirming, um, hot sauce in her nose. But I, I, immediately just it kind of like shut off the you know emotional investment because it's like yeah yeah, I guess so so that was successful but then not and I think also you know when she was fine 
And, and then we kind of go back with this like time Turner second half of the movie with yeah. like Harry and Hermione, that is funny. you know, like seeing everything and the audience gets to see with them what's actually happening. Yeah. Um, I think like that is Johnson's goal is to like subvert a traditional mystery story and like deconstruct it a little bit. Yeah. 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 And so like that more so the second half of the movie is, is like looking at what is a mystery story to subvert our idea of it. But yeah, I, I yeah. think our maybe we'll talk about that too. more. I think he understood that people are going to come in with high expectations. Yeah. And yeah. to your point about Norton, like the, the glass onion, I said this when we, when they pulled up on the dock felt like Scooby-Doo, Scooby yes. Island. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and I loved Scooby-Doo, um, growing up and obviously like the setting, right. Getting off this, this massive, um, like, or seeing this massive structure like Jurassic Park, and spooky and uh, spooky island uh, when we get off the boat, yeah. and also this idea of people feeling hypnotized on the island, right? Like all of Norton's friends are hypnotized essentially by his power and wealth. It is very spooky island, right? right? That like, is pretty crazy. Yeah, because they want to maintain their lifestyles. Yeah, and then when Blanc and Norton also go to the top of the office and uh the early on in the movie yeah in the in the glass onion the score even felt very scooby-doo as they're climbing those steps and i was like is edward norton scrappy do <laughs> and no joke like that was when i had the first inkling that's that great. norton was the killer oh really that's <laughs> when it was, that's what happened like, is this scooby-doo <laughs> yeah you knew before i did because i i mean we'll get to that in a second but that's funny i mean literally same after you said that like now i want to watch scooby-doo <laughs> Uh, spooky Island. Before we get there though, because I don't want to step too much on the Norton of, of it all being the killer. I don't want to step on my extra credits yet. What stood out here, much like Knives Out, are the characters. Each character in Glass Onion is way more elevated than Knives Out. Mm -hmm. They are kind of like caricatures of random social media trolls, yeah. like shallow celebrity influencers. I guess they're influencers. Yeah. There's entrepreneurs that you can't tell if they've like inherited money or stole millions of dollars. <laughs> and then of course you have tech billionaires who are like pseudo intellectuals, which like name the one you're thinking about out loud. And you're all probably naming different ones. So the movie is like heavily interested in how the audience can name real life U.S. culture uh, shitheads basically. And that you're sticking <laughs> them on screens in their most exaggerated ways possible so that we can all laugh at their expense, which is cool. I think that's a good time at the theater, even if it feels a little bit shallow or empty afterwards, because all those people we're laughing at ultimately have more of a platform than we do. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> we're kind of the joke by laughing at them. So it's like, whatever, but that's just, I guess, more existential to think about. <laughs> but yeah, each of those characters were fun to listen to banter and each performance was pretty solid. I don't think any of the performances were as memorable as any of the hard hitters and knives out though. I agree. And that's kind of tough because I personally feel this way probably because I just watched knives out the night before glass onion. And speaking of Tony Collette, she's probably the only character from knives out who's playing a glass onion, exaggerated caricature in a different movie in knives out. Like you could have probably placed Tony Collette's character and put her in glass onion and oh, she might've been the best performance. Yeah. And that's unfortunate because she she's like the fourth or fifth best, you know, performance in or best character in knives out, which is tough. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think the only character maybe that you could say stood out, but to me, she was playing just a very similar character that she always plays is Kate Hudson. Like, I think she was really funny, but that's also the, she's playing like a very self-aware Kate Hudson character, yeah. which is like a meta funny, but I'm not sure everybody will relate to that. Uh, so I'm kind of interested to see if people liked that or not. 
And I know people really loved Janelle Monet. She's getting like Oscar buzz too about this performance. But I think I might still be reeling from how bad Antebellum was last year because that movie didn't do it for me and she didn't do it for me either. It was like a rough performance, but even rougher film. And in Glass Onion, the whole Alabama accent teacher storyline yeah. thing was pretty tough. And I couldn't separate the writing from the performance, if that makes sense. I couldn't tell if I just wasn't loving what Johnson was doing with the twin thing or if I couldn't love the kind of like really self-serious Janelle Monet performance going back and forth with the Alabama teacher accent that was really tough. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Two things about that. I think first, like it was off for me because I was like, why is her character so distant? I was wondering, you know, in the first half of the movie and I was like, I don't know if I'm into this performance or maybe it's the writing, you know, I'm just like kind of confused because when we're in this situation um, with a friend group where, you know, there's not only broken friendships, but there's like legal things where they literally ruined her life and like took away like avenues for success, like a a huge, like complicated stole her IP. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Just relationship there. I was like, why, why is uh, she playing like so distant? Oh, but then second half of the movie, I learned that it's actually her twin but by that point, it's almost too late for me to buy in because yeah. I didn't buy in in the first part of the movie um, because I just felt like maybe there weren't enough, I guess, claws in, in there. And I guess like at, at that point, I, the suspense wasn't there for me anymore. Um, yes. And I and I think, you know, it felt too like muted. Um, and maybe that's not even like her performance. It was just like a, a thing maybe where it didn't reveal quick enough. I mean, I think that's a that's a critique of a lot of Janelle Monae's performances is muted. I think that is something that I've read people say, I've heard people talk about that, but also she kind of comes off as very powerful in the same, you know, mm-hmm. the same way, I think. So it's kind of, it goes both ways. What doesn't work here is that it's a very comedic mo- movie where half yeah. the movie you're like, is she not working in this movie? And then you realize, oh, she's playing like a meta role because there's two different things going on here. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, I realized obviously like going back, okay, I understand that she's playing her sister in this, Yeah. but because she was doing that in the first part of it, you know, that was like the task. Mm-hmm. I think the actual maybe like storyline itself then didn't like, or maybe not, maybe not storyline. Well, the, but there is the, the teacher element. We're teachers. Yeah. I, mean, if no, if, I guess that's also the second part. Yeah. Like, please everyone stop making timid teachers. Um, teachers are like some of the least timid people I know. Like we've had children, children, like essentially yeah. tell us to go fuck off. Yeah. Like we are <laughs> imperturbable. We are bionic creatures. Okay. <laughs> Um, so well, that mostly we get, for me. we get love from students, <laughs> but yeah, the wild 5% of kids that make teachers have thick skin, uh, <laughs> let's just say our th- skin is very thick. So yeah, I could, when I saw the Alabama teacher kind of be like, I don't know if I want to go do this. I'm like, nah, if this is a teacher, like, even though she's an elementary school teacher, so we don't want to project our high school, what's going on in the high school realm right now, because it's crazy in high schools across the country in the United States, what's going on with like restrictions of freedom of speech and what's going on in the classroom it's nuts but there's a lot of like political issues that we might have been projecting on the screen when the teacher thing happened because i thought the same thing and i was like okay it's an elementary school thing maybe it's very different maybe she's like like maybe she's acting like this way because she thinks this is how elementary school teachers i was trying to forgive the movie yeah well i mean also like i'm not uh judging a character or writing that for like someone not wanting to go into a situation where they literally uh, killed yeah. her sister yeah, and yeah, she doesn't yeah. know who it is so like that's not really what i'm talking about like i understand why a person 
wouldn't want to go into danger. But the way that the character was written or just like at the performance, I don't know which one it was. Um, like the, the timidness within the character, like didn't work for me. Yeah. You know, it's hard for me to separate. No, I understand. And I think additionally, what's tough about her character, this Alabama character taking her very seriously is because like she's taking the character very seriously. Like Janelle Monae is, which I know is Ryan Johnson's direction. Like that's what he's told his actors to do because he writes very absurd parts and she's doing a good job and taking it seriously, Mm -hmm. but she's playing it off of Daniel Craig's performance that he's equally taking seriously, but we're laughing at Daniel Craig, not because he's doing such a good job because that's James Bond with a Southern accent. (laughs) Maybe that's it. Yeah. Those two together are just tonally off. Yeah. Maybe that's it for me. They both play it seriously and are doing a good job, but we only have a history with one of them as being this like over, really serious person and like maybe the most in movie history which is james bond so that just makes the movie kind of odd i mean for us but we seem very much like on the fringes of like opinions when it comes to that because no one else is really sharing that i did i did like their relationship though like i bought in when they were like sitting at the table together i was rooting for them as like a friendship especially when she was like getting drunk and he was just like no no no, stop drinking this This kombucha and he's like no you should drink more often yeah Yeah. but i i did like their their relationship like i felt like that was a they had good chemistry yes okay i agree with that so even the dialogue, though, I want to know if we're going to talk about not negative things right now, even though I feel like we've been very negative on Glass Onion. But we did like it. Yeah. yeah well, I'm about to get to my extra credits. I haven't okay. gotten to the positive part yet. But the dialogue in Glass Onion was kind of tough at moments. A lot of the jokes were kind of corny to me. Like not all of them. There were obviously parts I laughed out loud. Like I laughed in the theater a lot. But sometimes, I don't know if there's a listener who like might relate to this. Kelsey, I know you do because we've talked about this. But sometimes I felt forced to laugh with certain audience in the theater, like I felt like I had to match a comedic virtue signal. Like I had to prove that I also think making fun of Elon Musk is funny (laughs) and that I also think Joe Rogan is hilarious. Like I think it's funny to laugh at him and have a good time (laughs) with the movies. But if I wanted all those things, I think I would just log on to Twitter. So I really don't think (laughs) Ryan Johnson wrote those because he seriously thought those jokes were funny. I'm convinced. After watching all of his filmography, like in all the subtle dark humor that he has laced throughout his movies these kind of like overtly on the nose jokes about characters that we already kind of existentially know are gonna be in our lives forever that are like hypocrites and con artists like i can't see him writing this movie and thinking these jokes are going to be taken seriously like i felt like npr wrote some of the jokes yeah i i felt like similar i especially like okay i guess this is how i would uh categorize my reaction to some of the jokes you know when a friend like sends you a meme or shows you a meme and you're like, oh yeah, I saw that. It's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like I yeah. felt like that was a lot of my reactions to the jokes because, um, I, a lot of the jokes, I feel like I've, I've seen that thread, um, in memes or in something in a tweet, like living on the internet already. Yeah. Um, and I was actually like genuinely curious because people were really laughing hard in the theater. I'm not saying like, Oh, this isn't like funny. Like, Oh, they don't, they've, they haven't seen it, but right, right. I was literally wondering like, are people on a different like algorithm or something? And they, maybe they hadn't like seen the memes because there are things that, uh, that when I've seen that joke for the first time, I did think was really funny. It's just, I'm not having the same reaction because I've heard the joke before. Like, for example, the like, sorry, feminists, like I laughed, I laughed at that. I thought it was funny, but I've already like heard 
that joke before. I, I laughed at it because it felt like an SNL skit, and I thought that he was doing that in like a meta way. Yeah, like he but was I mean, I did way. like that scene too. I'm just, yeah. I guess, I'm saying like it wasn't a full like, oh, that was really funny. Like that was like a fresh yeah. joke. Um, and then also though, there were things that were really funny. Um, I want to give credit to like the iPad joke. I thought it was great. The iPad joke. Oh, the free yeah. iPad thing? He was like, do we yeah, get a prize? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because looking back at it, Blanc knew that he like wasn't there to actually play in the game. Like, yeah. you know, and so he, he was like, trying to solve a mystery, which is why he <laughs> actually like, why not get an iPad out of it too? Yeah. Why not get free stuff? <laughs> and then also when Blanc solves the, the game mystery that Edward Norton set up with the little di- diamond or gem in his uh, necklace. I don't remember that. You know, when they're all at the the uh, dinner table and Norton's like, you, this is going to take all weekend to solve. Oh, the arrow and I'll answer him. questions. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I thought, th- I thought that was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought that's what the iPad was for. Yeah. He won the iPad. Oh, okay. That's the, that's the mystery. Yeah. Gotcha. But I thought that was a really fun scene. And then also Ethan Hawke. Okay. <laughs> that blew my mind. <laughs> that was amazing. I He's was like, so sad good. to see he wasn't in the movie. You're good. I know. Yeah. I know. Me too. Yeah. But you're good. I love that. Is he supposed to play? Is he supposed to be like a representation of like a private like CDC? Like he was coming out with these vaccines that are. I don't know. He was his actual character. I I looked it up is um, Edward Norton's assistant. Uh, that's a strong assistant. Yeah. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> that is funny how we were like, like we we're one of the first people to get vaccinated because of teaching. And like when we got vaccinated when we were doing, this is like before pre a lot of like what, what was coming out about what was in vaccines. Not that like we care, we trust the CDC just to let everybody know. <laughs> but uh, when, when that, that technology came out and the articles were coming out, I remember like trying to read it. And I remember thinking to myself like, I'm good. There's like, <laughs> you're there's good. some of the smartest people that are in the most expert positions telling me I'm good. I'm good. And it's funny hearing Ethan Hawke be like, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think with the, at the end, the comment with the disruptors, um, like Blanc being like, this is so dumb. Like this, yeah. the, the end of the crime was really fun where he, he was like, this is so dumb. Like you even took to Norton, you even took like the idea that I gave you to kill Batista and like shut off all the power. Yeah. Like he even got that idea from Blanc. And I thought those were like really fun and, and funny comments. They seem like really funny to write down on yeah. paper. I feel like that would have been a funny kind of like deserved joke yeah, yeah. to write it on paper. But I do think it's hard to compare it to Knives Out, especially since we saw it right before because the humor feels so seamless in Knives Out. Like yeah. even the small elements, if you think about like Detective, um, I forget his, his name, but Noah Sagan. Yeah, Noah yeah. Sagan's character where he's just this like huge fan of the author, like Harlan, right? He's like fanboying about yes, like statues yes. in the garden. He's like, this was in his, uh, you know, uh, short story mm-hmm. while everyone's trying to solve a, mor- a murder and like the comedic elements uh, are so like endearing and true to characters um it joined with that kind of idea of really caring about marta it's really hard to beat so i'm trying not to like compare you know so much but it's it, it is tough when like knives well, out was and, so funny and knives and out felt like there was like a lot of deserved payoff with the jokes yeah like the humor really felt deserved because you were you were trying to figure out the mystery along the way Glass Onion feels like there's a lot of jokes, but also like layers to why Ryan Johnson understands that the mystery nor the jokes are the point of this movie. And that's where I think we're probably going to get into my extra credits in a second. So I'll wait again on that. I do want to note the Jared Leto and Jeremy Renner bits. <laughs> I really thought Johnson wrote some seriously targeted jokes at audiences in a really masterful way at Knives Out. But dialogue like the Jared Leto and Jeremy Renner bits and like the moments in which those were like funny in the theater, they just felt like 
does it feel like this movie was like speaking to like elite coastal culture or something like purposely like that's what i mean by the npr of it all like it just felt like it was speaking to only like a culture that was like plugged in that way yeah I don't whereas know. knives out felt like it would speak to like millions of more people mm-hmm. than glass onion would like i i definitely feel like any critic who maybe lives like on the east coast or west coast like would really like this movie but i think if you got more inland weirdly i think people would like knives out even though it's a hit on conservatives conservatism especially donald trump but this movie a glass onion i don't think is going to hit the same way with all audiences but maybe yeah. i'm wrong well it's hard because i think glass onion characters are a little bit more silly like inherently like they're yeah. playing kind of like influencers or people with very public personas that they have to keep up so yeah. like there's already kind of this like surface level to the character and it's like difficult when there's also like an extra joke on top of that where in the actual like family dynamic first of all that's like so relatable off the jump it's a family it feels like a thanksgiving vibe yeah you know and the the characters like take themselves very seriously and they're just regular people who like but are wealthy and and uh, you kind of like see the flaws instead of seeing how they're silly mm-hmm. um i guess it's more it's more grounded in a way yeah it is pretty silly i mean goop the goop thing mm-hmm. that was kind of like a good i think indicator of like this is really like silly like i know they don't say goop in the movie but kate hudson's character is supposed to represent i think What's yeah, a, like an amalgamation of like Gwyneth Paltrow and yeah, yeah, like people. A lot of like celebrities owning, you know, uh, like fitness, you know, clothing lines. Yeah, but that, yeah. that all is like weirdly to me, Joe Rogan humor in a movie yeah. that's critiquing Joe Rogan people. Yeah. So that was what confusing. That felt very highbrow liberal, like liberal, like the literally the establishment that he's critiquing and knives out. I feel like a lot of the humor was written for. I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but I thought he was taking huge shots in other movies even a disney movie like last jedi was taking shots at like fundamentalism like there was like a lot there in in that movie but this you know i think this is where it gets interesting because this is where i might go into conjecture so bear with me kelsey okay (laughs) and uh how i feel about the script and listening and uh and how i feel about the script and watching this movie after listening to johnson talk about the film because after i saw this i was pretty like I was like, that was good, but I was a little disappointed. And I wanted to hear Ryan Johnson talk about it because I really like him. He's, he seems really humble, like seems like a really nice guy. Yeah. It seems really intelligent. And I wanted to hear about what his inspirations were like from his perspective. And it seemed like he purposely created Glass Onion, not as a whodunit, but more as a, a movie people could go watch and have wildly different experiences, like how we're having probably with other people listening to this. Maybe some people agree with what we're saying, but for the most part, I haven't heard anybody say what we're saying. So I think this is where I'll get into my extra credits. I think Glass Onion deserves extra credit because it's purposely not a mystery or a whodunit. It's a very straightforward plot, except for one element we'll get to. And it literally shows you who the murderer is in a very clear way that allows for multiple viewing experiences. And in the only moment where the film actually surprises you, it's with Janelle Monae's character, like we've established with the twin. And it does so in such an absurd way that I was thinking at the time... There had to be a much deeper, more meta reason he's making this movie that isn't at, at all a traditional sleuth mystery. So at the top of this pod, when I was trying to explore a possible through line of Johnson's films, I explained how he writes his lead characters to be kind of outsiders. They're lost and away from mainstream society, and they often respond to being pushed aside by wanting to burn the world down or find their own peace within it. And 
Ryan has, Johnson has talked about writing his characters in Glass Onion as uncomplicated. They are all explicitly breaking societal norms. They are literally calling themselves disruptors <laughs> yeah. by Braun, which is really funny because of how tech and finance gurus, quote unquote gurus, use that word today. But it's not just Braun who is the outsider on Glass Onion. It's all of the characters in the film that don't feel like they belong in the world. And so now they're like pushing on cultural wounds to hurt others and fuck with everyone who is stable. From the, the Dave Bautista character and the Twitch streamer of it all to the ignorant celebrity influencer played by Hudson, they've all become like con artists and meme lords. And really they're just like <laughs> trolling society and they're doing it with tons of power and platforms so through the first 45 minutes, I was genuinely really confused to why all the characters were so uncomplicatedly terribly, terrible people. It made them very uninteresting, like a boring, what you were saying, Suicide Squad with like really tough jokes. To yeah, that have. sounds harsh, but it, I kind of was like feeling that too. Well, this is my extra credits because then as the second- You're like, this is my- Yeah, this is positive because yeah. then as the second act is starting to take off and the group is all together at night having drinks- Norton's character Braun makes a drink and then moves out of focus of the camera and Ryan Johnson's incredible at camera work and his staging. So this looks really cool on the screen if anybody hasn't seen it or maybe you just haven't seen this exact moment I'm talking about. But in the corner of the frame, you can see how quickly uh, you see how quickly Norton's character switches his drink with Dave Bautista's character, Duke Cody. And there is an immediate cut to other people talking and laughing about something else in a different moment. And immediately I turned to Kelsey in the theater and I was like, oh, okay, so Johnson is telling us that Braun is the killer or Johnson just showed the swap of the drinks, maybe hoping to go back to it later, which both of those things actually happen at the end of this movie. We learn that he is the killer and they also show us again at the end of the movie. Yeah. And I, I literally didn't see that, which was so funny. Um, I, I was paying attention, but I didn't see the swap and I was like, oh, okay. And then I think uh, everyone's saying that they didn't see it until second watch and people it, people will have seen it in the first yeah, watch. Yeah. I, yeah. I picked it up. I'm sure there yeah, are millions it's not of like people unique. who picked it up. I yeah. think it was pretty straightforward. Like I I was noticing that was something was going on, but I just wasn't looking in the right part of the screen. But right. there will be a lot of people who are looking in the right part of the screen like you were. And I think from that moment where you like told me where the switch happened, um, and I kind of like knew maybe Norton was the killer or the person that I should be suspecting. Um uh, but I wasn't like rooting for him, right. you know, like I was Marta, obviously. And so it felt a little bit like deflated. I felt a little bit deflated throughout the right. movie from that point. Yeah. And I, I think I was confused emotionally too, like what you're saying and deflated because I, I cared a little bit less, felt like the stakes dropped or something. Yeah. Because like I was thinking, why would Johnson show us who the murderer was and a whodunit? But then by the end of the movie, it felt like Johnson was making more of a, like I said, choose your own mystery movie, which is very, like very different from Knives Out. Like Glass Onion is way more similar to Clue. You could have noticed like what I picked up with the beginning of the switch of the drink and thought, okay, Braun is the murderer. So how is Benoit Blanc going to solve this case? And you just follow the clues with Blanc, which that's what I was doing. Or you could have not noticed the switch of the drink and been like, okay, this is a fun murder mystery, like a whodunit. So if you were part of that latter group who was like, this is a whodunit movie, you because you didn't see the switch. You shouldn't have told me so I could have come in with that perspective. Honestly, I probably <laughs> should. I, I think what I did was I asked you because I was like, I, I I was just so confused. I was like, why would he show us this? Because yeah. there was nothing like that in Knives Out. So it's not like I thought there was a mistake. I was just confused because I was right. like, you were like, what's wait, happening did he just show us the end of the movie? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're a part of that latter group, if you didn't notice and this movie was like really fun murder mystery for you. 
the whole Janelle Monet twin storyline switch up, like that 25 minute side plot, I would assume that really works for you based on what I've heard. Unfortunately for me, I was kind of annoyed that I knew it was Norton and thought I was being led in different directions, like the twin story, because I wasn't having the same experience as the rest of the audience. Like even the jokes weren't hitting because I'm like, okay, Norton is the killer. So what are we doing here? Oh, here is a twin and she's also a teacher. Interesting choice. And yeah. Which also just before you, you go on, there was someone there who, um, like, had kept getting up. I don't know if they were getting snacks or like going to the bathroom, but yeah. they left at the twin scene, Tragic. the whole twin scene. I forgot about that. Where yeah. like we find out <laughs> that the sister is going to like actually go with Blanc to the island. That's funny. And I was yeah. like, this person is going to be so lost when they come back. Like imagine having to be the person, whoever he, he was with uh, to explain that to him. He'd be like, what? <laughs> that I mean, that is a really like, I hopefully we can get Ryan Johnson on the podcast because I, I would love for you to tell him that story. <laughs> um, okay, all that to say, because I haven't been positive at all in my extra credits, because I'm about to be. Seeing the drink switch for the first time just really messed with my movie experience. And at the end of the film, when Braun is having all of his shit blown up by the twin sister, Monet's character, I really didn't care at all. Like his home was being burnt down and it was all very anticlimactic to me. Like it wasn't, it just didn't have any, it just didn't feel important to me. And the only part there at the end that had interesting layers to me was that Braun was this white man who stole his ideas that he profited off of from a black woman, which is historically obviously relevant. And maybe even more deeply, and this is where it gets interesting, this I think is where the movie actually deserves extra credit. So if you're like, why has he said nothing positive? This is the positive part. <laughs> is I think Ryan Johnson might've been making a meta comment about how all the love and recognition he gets for subverting genres, especially in Knives Out, is because of his inspiration from Agatha Christie and tens of other creators that he's noted along the way, because he's very humble. There are a lot of meta layers there that might be true that make the movie a sort of an experiment in a way, which I think is really cool. So let's get into that deeper because really two things, I guess, about, about Glass Onion that deserve extra credit. Number one is the choose your own mystery movie about whether you solve the drink switch or not, because there's different experiences. And number two is this like potentially meta part of Johnson's writing, which he's talked a good amount about, which hopefully I can add some of those conversations in here in the pod. So because in reading and listening to Johnson about Glass Onion, since I saw the movie, I've grown to appreciate what he was trying to do. And the meta aspect of Glass Onion seems more and more intentional from what I've heard from him. Like the title of this movie, for example, Kelsey, I don't know if you know this, but he was trying to make something that people want to believe has layers. Okay. He wanted to make something that people were trying to overanalyze, but really the truth was right there in front of them the whole time. Like apparently Glass Onion is a Beatles song that John Lennon wrote and used to confuse people who read too much into the lyrical meanings of the Beatles. So they essentially made a whole song about what annoys them, about the way <laughs> people kind of intellectualize their music or over-intellectualize their music, which is interesting. Everyone should go watch the Beatles documentary, by the way. Too. We have that not was, finished that yet. Yeah, you I know. We've been that. saving it. Yeah. It's like six hours, right? Yeah, it's, it's really, really great. It it's is like really people great. Just, it, they're just like writing their songs, just like messing around. It's wild. Well, it's we literally knew nothing about the Beatles before going into that. Yeah, like, that's I'd, true. I This sounds crazy. I've probably listened to like five songs from the Beatles until that documentary. I don't know if that's true. Like, no, I feel that's like you'd recognize true. a lot of Beatles songs that you Well, you I, I appreciated I them after the documentary. Anyways, okay, so when Johnson was asked why he wrote Glass Onion, he said he just wrote about what is annoying about the world. And obviously the surface level anger we can read on the movie is that he doesn't like Joe Rogan or Elon Musk or Bill Gates adjacent characters 
or just kind of like con artist. But beneath those characters, I think, which I might be wrong, but Glass Onion is kind of like a writer-director's response to being dubbed an incredible whodunit writer. And there might be some kind of like imposter syndrome underlying meta theme going on in this movie because Glass Onion feels very much like a spoof of a mystery, if anything, Hmm. like not a real mystery. It almost feels like Johnson is trying to create like a humility project by trying to show us the drink switch because that's very rare to show a murder in a movie that's a murder mystery like yeah, that doesn't definitely a happen choice. Yeah. yeah and it's not like i mean he's smart enough obviously like we've seen from all his movies well, that's to the, make that intentionally that's the thing i feel like he's saying that like stop trying to like uh make me this like clever agatha christie agatha christie's my hero i'm not agatha christie which i really respect that that's what he's doing which it sounds like from his interviews he's kind of noted that a few times and I relate to that. Like we're all just copying people that inspired us when we were younger. And in that way, Glass Onion is actually pretty provocative if you read the movie like that, because it's sort of a critique on audience members for trying to be clever instead of just trying to enjoy a movie for the story and what it is. And I'm obviously including that because I am diving this deep into the, like, <laughs> into the psychology of Ryan Johnson. Uh, so this movie sort of is like a meta artistic experiment to me. That's like how I, in my head canon, how it works for me. It kind of remind, reminds me of Jordan Peele's Nope, where he, oh, yeah, okay. where he kind of sets out to make a spectacle, and that spectacle movie is critiquing the cycle of exploiting spectacle. So that kind of paradox that Jordan Peele is dealing with with Nope kind of reminds me of what Ryan Johnson has here in Glass Onion. So there's a lot of introspective movies in 2022. And ultimately, I just like that the title, you know, that's my extra credit ultimately, is that he's making it very straightforward that the title informs the possible purpose of the movie, which is that maybe just stop overanalyzing things that are very clearly, you know, transparent in their meaning. So, you know, I don't know if any of what I just said is just true at all, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, he has talked about it. I'm interested, you know, hopefully again, if we can get him on to ask him about that, I'd love to talk to him about the title. I'd love to talk to him about, you know, the people who've inspired him and how he's probably, you know, he's brought up before he feels like a fraud. <laughs> the way people have talked about him as like Agatha Christie of making movies right now. So it's kind of funny and sad at the same time. And, um, you know, I'm, sh- I'm convinced though, after listening to him, that he would probably really dislike how many people have been saying that this movie is a great commentary about how wealth corrupts everything. Because I've heard people say that, like this movie is about the wealthy and like how they fuck up everything. But that's such like a weird surface level take to take from this movie where you actually have movies this year, like satires, like the menu and others Mm -hmm. that are triangle of sadness that are trying to make a whole movie about that idea. Go to an Island. Right. But glass onion seems way more interested in different things. So that makes the movie kind of weirdly tonally off ultimately a little bit, even if it is like kind of a, a personal project. Yeah. But that actually makes a lot of sense when you're talking about Jordan Peele and especially since this movie he was writing it like during the pandemic we saw a lot of like aspects especially at the beginning um with with the storyline where we know that he was writing it like when we were all in like lockdown and i think like the idea of it being an introspective movie and kind of uh like jordan peele investigating or, or kind of like just like making a movie um that is looking at this more humble like idea of of someone's own own fame or success is really interesting especially like you, like you said showing us the actual mystery like the end up front yeah so yeah i'd be really interested to hear like if that was his purpose and also i mean i guess you've listened to way more interviews than i have so i'm assuming there is that like idea of of his 
lifelike in that in that way in this movie yeah and, and that does seem to be a through line of a lot of directors works like around their third or fourth movie they have really like self-reflective journeys about mm -hmm. their success and this does seem like one of those it just took six movies but ultimately i think the biggest thing that clouds me with glass onion is that i uncomplicatedly loved knives out and i wanted more of that intense character writing with marta and the themes that are running through her her arc that were pretty seamless and it felt like Glass Onion was more for people that like to laugh at the Knives Out neo-Nazi kid in the bathroom than for the people who enjoyed those tense moments like in the hallway outside of Marta's home when Michael Shannon arrives and he's like pressuring her to give up the will. Oh, yeah. Those scenes are like absent from Glass Onion. Mm. Like that's really good writing. And that shows like how smart his scripts are. And I want to see him make more of those movies. And I feel like Glass Onion doesn't have any of those kind of smart moments. Instead, you have like a lot of like Janelle Monet like breaking down this glass house at the end of this film and that that just doesn't work for me as well but ultimately like he does great with interpersonal tensions he's politically spicy in his themes I'm excited for whatever the next Knives Out mystery is yeah and I like I'll go watch all of like the 10 20 Knives Out universe movies or what do we do we call the it like the Knives Out mystery oh he said not to call it a universe I think okay so it's just a Knives Out mystery okay but Blanc yeah, Benoit like Blanc's. A, yeah. yeah, I will watch everything. So I would. I don't know if I'll like. I, I really want to rewatch Glass Onion, but I don't know if it's something that in the future I'll be like, oh my god, we have to put on Knives Out. Like I'm just in the mood to watch Knives Out. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I'm still excited to watch Glass Onion again. Yeah. Yeah. So that's you know that's the big positive takeaway from this. Okay, that was our extra credits of Knives Out and Glass Onion. Last point I want to make about uh, the Who Done It this year. Because I don't really think of Glass Onion like a whodunit, I'm, I hope I don't sound like an asshole for saying that because so many people have called it that. Uh, I'd actually like to point out that the best Agatha Christie adjacent story this year was probably Bodies, Bodies, Bodies by mm. Helena Rain. I think that is probably underrated at this point in 2022. Much like Nope is kind of underrated too. Like the fact that Glass Onion, which is a good movie, is getting Oscar buzz, but like Bodies isn't or The Menu isn't or Nope isn't. And those are only like three of our top 20, 25 movies. So there's a lot of other movies I think are pretty incredible this year that haven't been getting uh, the same attention. I find that interesting. But again, Glass Onion is a good time. And I'm sure people will love it when it comes out to Netflix in December. Yeah. All right, Kelsey, any last points about these movies? No, I mean, I like your, your point about Bodies, 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 because I really loved it. And I think like it's interesting uh, that you said that Johnson should write a horror at the beginning of this because I think he would be so successful. I hope maybe in the future we get a horror uh, slanted Knives Out universe, not universe, he doesn't want us to call it that, whatever, story. Yeah. That would be so cool. The Ryan Johnson Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe Knives Out Glass, Mis Glass Onion Mystery Stories. All right, we did it. Ryan Johnson, love your movies. This has been the Ryan Johnson Podcast, talking about his themes, ranking his movies, giving our extra credit to one of the most hilariously weird, but tons of fun, whodunit films, mystery movies, Knives Out and Glass Onion. And also, I want to say, just again, we like Glass Onion. It's a, good, it's a good movie. Good flick. I just think we maybe sounded like we were harsh on it, but I liked it. Yeah, I liked it too. I'm excited to hopefully talk about it with him. Kelsey, we will be back on the pod soon, right? With a special conversation. We will. About one of our favorite movies of all time for its 30th anniversary. Should we say what that is? Yeah, why not? People can watch it before. You can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. 
we're going to be talking about a few good men. That's going to be coming on next week. And also, we have a very special guest coming on next week, a writer from one of my favorite films of the year that will give us a ton of insight on one of the best scripts of 2022. I also wanted to say before we leave this podcast, the last thing I'm going to be thinking about is Adam Driver as the like new sad boy, you know, (laughs) Kylo Ren, sad boy, marriage story, sad boy. He's like the evolution. Now we need to see a movie where Adam Driver is the older brother to Timothy Chalamet and they both just play sad boys. They would be good brothers. Being alive. Being alive. (laughs) This has been Trey. Peace. <laughs> Let me be used very my days, but alone is alone, not alive. Somebody crowd me with love. Somebody force me to care. Somebody make me come through. I'll always be there, as frightened as you, to help us survive. Being alive. Being alive.